Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, it's a new museum on Liberty Island in New York, and it goes along very nicely with the research center on Ellis Island. Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to the director of that research facility about how you can find out about your immigrant ancestors. And we've got another Ask Us Anything, talking about research at the National Archives. That's all this week on Extreme Genes, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover, gather, connect, a present of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to Extreme Genes, America's family history show and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Great to have you along. If you're new to the show, this is where you get inspiration and information about how to find your ancestors and discover some of those stories. In fact, later on in the show today, we have an ordinary person with an extraordinary find and he'll explain exactly how he did it. Plus, we're going to talk to Jackie Schalk. She is the director of uh, an organization at Ellis Island that is so long that I can hardly even say it. Nonetheless, she's going to tell you about their database and how you can find out about your immigrant ancestors and what's going on there in New York since their recent gala celebrating the opening of the museum on Liberty Island. It's going to be great fun with Jackie. And then later in the show, we're going to talk to Bernice Bennett. She is a researcher with the National Archives. She's going to answer some of your questions. It's another Ask Us Anything segment on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show. Right now, it is time to head out to Boston, Massachusetts and talk to my good friend David Allen Lambert. He is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. And uh, Dave, we have some news today. Family histoire news. Where do we start? Well, let's go to jolly old England, where they have just celebrated the bicentennial of a former queen, the birthday of Queen Victoria, born on May 24th, 1819. And, you know, she still has so much influence on the culture of the world to this day, I'm thinking. First of all, my great-grandmother was named after her, Victoria, who named Mm -hmm. a daughter Victoria. There was a granddaughter, Victoria, as well. But she, of course, changed the mores of society at the time because there were so many illegitimacies. I mean, here's a woman who was an infant when George III, her grandfather, was alive, who was, you know, involved in the American Revolution. And her great-great-granddaughter is still on the throne longer than Victoria. Yep. and She's almost 100. Yeah, approaching her 100th birthday. It's unbelievable. Well, you know, one of the intakes that a lot of genealogists are taking now, or the outtake, is what are you going to do about your Jed match? I opted in. I'll be straightforward and honest. I went in, selected it. My feeling I've long believed is that if my second cousin was a murderer and you want to catch him with my DNA, go right ahead. Well, you know, I feel the same way, and I also recognize that people at least need to know what the terms of service are, and if you're not familiar with the story, it just happened a week or so ago, GEDmatch, which is the linchpin to solving uh, DNA cases, cold cases with police and other authorities, they decided to opt everybody out and then adjust the terms of service to what they wanted it to be and said, all right, if you want to help police with these cases, you have to opt in now. So if you you've had a GEDmatch account and you haven't visited it in a long, long time, you need to go back in and make your decision. Are you going to opt in or are you going to opt out? At least it's your choice. And here's the predicament that I'm facing. Now, all the people that allowed me to take the raw data and put on there, do I contact them and say, listen, you're currently opted out, but do you want to opt in? And how about if some of them are now in light of all this news, 
decide that they don't want to be in it at all? Well, I mean, am I going to lose all that data? They could certainly back out as far as the police stuff goes and even make the account private. There are lots of settings there now. That's very true. That's very true. So there are lots of well, options. I don't think you'll lose anybody. I hope not. Well, you know, I love Find a Grave. In fact, I'm actually editing my cemetery book on Massachusetts, doing an ebook version with all the hyperlinks. And then I made a realization. When I looked at findagrave.com and I was looking for information on a particular town in Massachusetts, I said, is that what I think it is? Sure enough, on Find a Grave, you can find pet cemeteries. And in the keyword <laughs> search fish, <laughs> I put in the word pet and came up with 320 pet cemeteries. That really goes to show you that genealogy is going to the dog yes. <laughs> and the cat. I had no idea. Did, did you know it, this before? Nope. 320 nope. pet cemeteries on Find a Grave. What about Billion Graves? Do they do that, too? I they don't know. I haven't tried them? that. That's, mm. that's one I guess we'll have to check that, too. Yes. I mean, you know, so if you're researching the King family, remember, it could be for Fido's father, not your grandfather. <laughs> yes, that's right. You never know. <laughs> I think one of the hardest parts of researching in the 17th century, for me, is the ladies, the stories. And I think that Pilgrim Hall in Plymouth, Massachusetts, with the 400th anniversary right around the corner, has a wonderful exhibit about women and the women of Plymouth Colony, including the Native Americans, as well as the ladies that make up our pilgrim ancestors. Yeah, this is kind of exciting. And I know that there's not a lot there unless it's a court case, right? Because women <laughs> will often show up that way. Remember the shared ancestor I have with your wife, Tristram Coffin's wife, Deanna Stevens, yes. who was selling ale on the wrong day? <laughs> oh, yeah. You can't sell ale on Sunday, right? That's true. I like the ancestors that get into trouble. They show up in more records. <laughs> they do show up in more records. You're absolutely right. Well, this is going to be fun. I know that a lot of the pilgrim wives are going to get their due here because obviously they were as much a part of everything that happened to establish Plymouth Colony as any of the men. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they display there. All right. Thanks so much, David. Good stuff. We will talk to you again next week. Well, it's time to head out to New York City on Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show on ExtremeGenes.com. I am Fisher, your radio root sleuth. And you may have heard about the big gala that went on at Liberty Island. It was the grand opening of the museum there. And we're excited to have on the line with us Jackie Shock. She is the director of the American Family Immigration History Center located at Ellis Island. Jackie was part of the gala. And uh, Jackie, this is a big deal because I think there's so much more from Ellis Island that's becoming available for people who are into their family history history and certainly know that they have people who came through not only Ellis Island, but Castle Garden and uh, other spots around New York before Ellis Island opened up. Absolutely. And, and we have records from 1820 to 1957 for the Port of New York. There's a lot of records out there. Well, it's great to have you on the show. This is a very long title here, Director of the American I, Family Immigration History Center located at Ellis Island. Does that all fit on a business card? No. <laughs> <laughs> especially now that we're the National Museum of Immigration since 2015. So now it's located at the Ellis Island National Museum of Immigration, which is a little bit longer than title. Wow. <laughs> you need a two-sided card at least. <laughs> well, tell us, this gala recently was a very big deal. Oprah Winfrey was there, and, of course, Dr. Henry Louis Gates. 
actually Skip Gates is also a board member of ours. So uh, you named two uh, big celebrities that just happen to support us, the foundation. That's fantastic. Well, I'm just looking at the party that night and it was black tie. Everybody was dressed to the nines. And, you know, what a big deal, too, when you think about it, to honor all those immigrant ancestors who came through Ellis Island and Castle Garden before that. And uh, what kind of things now can people expect to see in this museum? First of all, where is it located on Liberty Island? So it is on the statue, like at the Statue of Liberty on Liberty Island. It's on the west side of the island. And it's to serve approximately 85% of uh, 4.5 million visitors that are unable to get that full experience of Liberty Island when they come. This is a museum that you don't need a special ticket or security clearances for. It makes it accessible to everyone and all the artifacts that tell the story of the Statue of Liberty in America. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the artifacts that you might see there, one might expect to see? Uh, I can tell you a personal favorite of mine. There's a, a gala, and it's the invite. And this was a gala that they had to raise money for the pedestal. I think it was like October 22nd, uh, 1885. And it was uh, at Madison Square Garden. And so there's pieces of history telling the story of how Americans all grouped together to raise the money necessary to have the pedestal created for the Statue of Liberty, the gift. Um, yeah. From France. And they knew so, it was coming. They knew it was coming, mm-hmm. but they didn't have the pedestal for it. Weren't there school children involved in this, as I recall? Pennies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Donations were never more than a dollar. I mean, people saved pennies. Joseph Pulitzer had put out an ad in the New York world. So anyone who made a donation, their name was uh, listed in the newspaper as a, as a shout out. So wow. it really was America's first crowdfunding campaign. Yeah, it was the first crowdfunding campaign. And, you know, the parade that celebrated the dedication of the Statue of Liberty was the first ticker tape parade in New York as well. In fact, my Mm -hmm. great-grandfather was among the marchers in that. He was one of the volunteer firemen who was part of the whole thing. It's just an amazing thing how it was recognized at the time. And the Mm -hmm. statue has never lost its luster. At least in terms of its reputation, obviously, physically, it's gone through deterioration and a rebuild and a a fix. But uh, it's just a remarkable symbol of our country. So people can get out to Liberty Island to see this and see these uh, amazing artifacts that are there, which really I think for a lot of people, they cannot get up the stairs of the Statue of Liberty. That might really be the only experience they have there. Right. Exactly, but we have an immersive theater, and when you go in, it allows you to feel like you're going to uh, the very top of the statue. So you get to feel as if you are making that climb up to the crown, which is amazing. It is amazing. I've uh, I've done it before, and I just remember looking out there and thinking, I cannot believe I'm looking out the crown of the Statue of Liberty. You don't get sure. to stay there very long, because there's usually a long line of people behind you. But mm-hmm. uh, but it, it's uh, it's quite the time. So how does Ellis Island and Liberty Island, how do they tie together in terms of how you serve the tourism? So there are two ways to get to the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island. Uh, one is through New York and the other is New Jersey, and they mm-hmm. take a ferry. And so coming from New York City, you would go from where Castle Garden once was. That's where the tickets are and, and the security lines. And you'll board a ship there, a ferry, and it takes you to the Statue of Liberty, another ferry that takes you to Ellis Island. Wow. So you can catch it mm-hmm. all on the same day. But it really is a, a same day kind of experience, I think, for most people, right? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, you do it all in one day, but it's a long day. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you got, yeah, this is not the kind of thing you just go, okay, I'm going to go out there and then I'm going to go tour and do Broadway. And I mean, there's, there's, you cannot do yeah. it all to, to catch it all and to really fully appreciate it. Uh, you've really got to do this over the course of one long day, starting early, preferably. Preferably, yes. Preferably. Mm -hmm. All right. Now, you are the director of the American Family Immigration History Center located at Ellis Island. It's a very long title. <laughs> and and let's, <laughs> let's talk about that a little bit, because uh, as genealogists, a lot of people, of course, have had their family come through both Castle Garden and Ellis Island. Tell us about your center. Right. So uh, the center is located on the West Wing, first floor. We serve probably somewhere in the ballpark of 55,000 families a year. And uh, that's probably 2 million that visit Ellis annually. And you can come in, sit down, have a session. We have research assistants available at the History Center. So you can go in and sit down with your family, have a research session, and get tips and tricks on how to find successfully find your family in our database. Wow. That is a lot of fun. You know, I mean, it's just come such a long way just in the last 20 years for how to research that. And I've seen pictures of people with their ancestral photo of somebody standing inside Ellis Island and the descendant standing in the mm -hmm. exact same spot, which just blows my mind. Absolutely. How many people came through Ellis Island? Nearly half of all Americans can trace their family to Ellis Island, uh, but we have 64 million records in our database, but that includes all souls, including those who worked on the ship, etc. Oh, wow. So, yeah, mm -hmm. that's right, because they would have to come through as well, right? Yes. And we opened the History Center uh, the same day that we launched online. It was April 17, 2001. We chose the date because it was the one day that we had more people processed than any other day on Ellis Island in its history, um, 11,747 people. Oh, wow. In one day. Yeah. <laughs> was there a place to hold people back if they came across with an illness? I know there was a lot of inspection of people for their general health, a very cursory sure. inspection. Where did they hold these people? There was um, Islands 2 and 3. We had dormitories. There's the hospital buildings, of course, quarantine. Yeah, there's many, many buildings on Ellis Island, although they're not open to the public. Just the main building is what's really for people to visit. And then they have tours with um, their hospital tours that are conducted through another nonprofit organization other than the one I work for. I work for the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're, mm -hmm. you're back and forth on the boat between both islands. Yes. <laughs> and then our, our administrative offices, of course, like earlier this morning. Sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've got, for instance, a couple of sets of great-great-grandparents that came through New York. I know they didn't go through anywhere else. They both preceded Ellis Island. They came in the 1830s and 40s. Yet I've never found any record of these families anywhere. I'm sure I'm not alone. There must have been others who've run into this many times over. Can you explain why that might be? Yes. First of all, I do explain there is the 80-20 rule. So it is to be expected that some manifests are misindexed. And there are reasons for it. One could just be that it was simply a miss, that we're missing the last name in the database and we need to put it in. It's just a, a slip. There's also a possibility that we couldn't read the name. Uh, maybe the pages were actually missing. Pieces of the pages were missing so that there is no name any longer in that sure. photograph that was in the microfiche. Then there's also Patrick could be spelled PTK or PAT or just a letter P. So there's 
different reasons as to why it's missing, but I generally don't believe that there are manifests missing, per se. I think they do exist. It's just finding different ways, wildcard searches, et cetera, to find them. And I actually can a suggestion or a tip that I don't think many users know about, about our website, about the EIDB, the Ellis Island Database. So on our website, you have to have a last name, at least two letters of the last name to do searches. But there's a way to bypass that. So a lot of families may have the name of the ship and the date that they sailed, but they're not finding successfully the manifest on the database. Mm -hmm. And what you can do is you go into our filters. The field is called a PID or a passenger ID. If you put in a digit like a zero or a one or a nine, it'll allow you to search without a last name. Really? So you Mm -hmm. can look through just by first names only and maybe by a certain date and really narrow it down. And maybe you'd have several pages to go through and then ultimately find the person you're looking for, hopefully recognizing something that somebody else didn't. Yes. And also, if you have the name of the ship, sometimes the name of the ship is actually entered more than once or it's spelled differently. City of Columbia, City of Columbia with two A's, or maybe it's intentional. Maybe those records actually, they put two A's at the end. I I don't know. It's just as an example. But yeah, you can search with the name of the ship, make sure there's not duplicates of a name of the ship, and then a date and no name. And that is one way that you can sometimes find success on our database. She's Jackie Schock. She's the director of the American Family Immigration History Center located at Ellis Island. Jackie, great tips, great ideas. I know there are going to be a lot of people right now hopping online going, oh, I'm going to try it. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. Great stuff. Thank you. And on the way next, we're going to talk to an Extreme Genes listener in Little Rock, Arkansas, who has had a family mystery 60 years in duration. You know, I love sharing with you ordinary people with extraordinary finds and how they found it. Hi, it's Fisher. It's Extreme Genes, America's Family History Show, and ExtremeGenes.com. And uh, very excited to be talking to one of our listeners from Little Rock, Arkansas, where he listens to Extreme Genes on KARN-FM 102.9. And uh, Kelsey Dumb is on the line. Kelsey, I'm excited to hear about this story because I know you had a, a really difficult time figuring out who your grandmother was because of the fact she was from France. Yeah, my mom and them been trying to find any kind of information on that side of the family for 60 years, and I managed to do it in a few weeks. Wow. <laughs> mostly, by lu- mostly by luck, I'll say. That's pretty fun. Give us a little background now here. Now, you're, this is your mother's mother. Your mother's mother was from France, but you just didn't know anything beyond that, and nobody else in the family did either. What do you know about your grandmother, or what did you know? Well, all we really knew at first was, obviously, she was born and raised in France and met my grandfather during the war. And he was a soldier. Yes, he was with the U.S. Army. She came to America through the War Bride Act. And what I understand of that was during that war, basically, if you met somebody over there and you became engaged or got married, they could come over here and kind of pass up the process of citizenship. Even if they were just engaged, they could still come over here, but they would have to go through a certain process to become a legitimate citizen, mm-hmm. and she apparently didn't do that. So Not a lot of records, then? Not a lot of records at all, and she did somehow come to get a uh, Social Security number here, but all we knew was she had a brother and a sister, and I think we had her parents' names 
but they were very, very common French names. So oh boy. it was real, really tough to, to hunt them down. <laughs> so what did you do? Well, I first started with Ancestry.com. Then I found the site Genianet. Yes. Yeah, which and, covers uh, France very extensively. Yeah, there's a lot of good resources for Europe in general, I guess, but uh, French particularly. So in just basically run through and see what pops up, and one thing would lead me to another. I stumbled across a, a man's family tree that he was doing. Of course, he was French and spoke no English, so I, Google Translate was my best friend there for a little while. But he was doing a family tree for his wife, okay. and it turns out his wife had the same last name as my great-grandmother. Okay. And so I'm just looking at his tree, and a lot of names are kind of lining up. The number of people weren't right on point, but then again, his tree wasn't completed, and he hadn't finished doing research. But it was enough to give me the information I needed, and when I started looking up some of these names, I found my grandmother's brother's wife. Oh, wow. Still living. And still living, and I actually found her on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Great tool, uh, right? Anywhere in the world. Yeah, and it was just still at that point kind of a shot in the dark. So I sent her a message. She had a daughter and a son, and I was looking at the children's names, and the son had the exact same name as the father I was looking for. So I had to assume this is probably Pierre Jr. Right. Name for his dad, yeah. Yeah, so I found the daughter on Facebook as well and just kind of asked them some basic questions if they knew much about that side of the family. Their knowledge is pretty limited as well. And so we just kind of got to talking, and the daughter, which is actually my mother's first cousin, she sent me some pictures of what would be my great-grandmother. Oh, wow. And it just blew me away. (laughs) I had a picture of my grandmother almost in the exact same pose, but probably 25 years later. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you talk about just a dead ringer, identical, and I went, you know, I think I may have found something here. Wow. How did you figure out that you had the right people for sure? Uh, once we got to talking more and trading information, um, everything started lining up. And I have to thank the good man on Genianet that was helping me because he actually was going down to the French archives and accessing records that I obviously couldn't access nor read French. Mm-hmm. And he was really a big help and uh, kind of pointing me in the right direction and giving me some more concrete evidence and paperwork and birth certificates and stuff like that. So, so you got the documentation then that proved everything you were looking for? Yes. Wow. And so you got great-grandma's picture. How about great-grandfather? Yes. They did send me a couple really cool photos of my great-grandfather when he was in the French Army in World War One in 1917, I believe it was. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And, and they even actually sent me a photo of my grandmother when she was 12 years old. And that's kind of when things started to get emotional and kind of set in because I think my mom and her siblings had never seen a photo of their mother any younger than about the time when they were born. Right. Yeah. Childhood um, pictures. 
So now yeah, you've got was, this this big bonding thing going on with these folks in France. Have you had any uh, visual communication, or have you gone over there? Yeah, actually, we did a four-way video chat through Facebook, and people were kind of getting choked up a little bit. It was funny when I was trying to put two and two together, and I was asking him, I said, are you related to a Georgette Albertine Miller-Ray? And then he said, well, Pierre had a sister but we didn't know much about her. All we knew was her nickname was Zazette Party in the USA. And I went, hmm. I said, why is that? They said, well, she left at a pretty young age to America, and we just kind of lost touch. No one ever heard from her again or anything. And I went, you know, that's that's got to be Grandma. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Unbelievable. Could they speak any English when you did the video call? Yeah, my mom's first cousin and the daughter of the first cousin both speak pretty good English. I've been working on my French, too. I'm actually teaching myself, so wow. hopefully I can learn a little bit. <laughs> but uh, I guess it would be my cousin, first cousin once removed. Is that what they would call, I guess? Yeah. I would say thir- third cousin, but I think the technical term is second cousin once removed, I think. Well, uh, anyway. if your mother's first cousin would be your first cousin one generation removed. Okay, the daughter of her. Okay, that's your second cousin. Uh, yeah, and she's real close to my age, and she's supposed to be bringing her two-year-old daughter to come visit in August. So Wow. R- really, really excited for that. No kidding. Well, what an incredible journey and, uh, you know, life-changing kind of stuff. How's your family feeling about all this? Uh, my mom was the only one that knew I was doing anything, and she wasn't really aware of the amount of information I had gathered. So Christmas Day is when I called my aunts and uncles. One lives in Wisconsin, one's in Seattle, one's in Alaska. So, you know, I got to treat them to the information all separately. But wow. um, I kind of got the silence and they were just kind of astonished because they thought they would leave this world not knowing anything about Nani was what we called my grandmother. I guess they didn't think they would ever find anything out about Nani or that family. So it's been really important for even myself because I've always been really interested in finding our family. Wow. These Kelsey dummies from Little Rock, Arkansas, and has had quite the breakthrough getting his family back into France and connecting with relatives. Good job, Kelsey. Thank you. I appreciate you, and your show helped inspire me to do all this, so I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you uh, sharing the story with everybody, because it's great stuff. And uh, coming up next, we're going to talk to Bernice Bennett. She is an expert, of course, at the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and this is where we answer your questions, and this is a fun one today, because my good friend Bernice Bennett, she is the author of Tracing Their Steps, where she goes back and verifies oral history about her own family. She is in the National Archives like every day. So we're going to take all kinds of questions about the National Archives because I'm thinking there are a lot of people who have never been there, myself included. So Bernice, welcome to Extreme Genes. Great to have you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. And you know, I know that you use the National Archives for your book because you were verifying this oral history and uh, you finally found that one document there. When that moment arrived, did you just jump up and down and scream and make people frightened? No, I cried. Did you? (laughs) I was so excited because, you know, my grandmother told me that her grandfather owned a lot of land. 
And so somewhere throughout my research process, I said, perhaps he was a homesteader. And I requested that record at the National Archives. And yes, he was a homesteader. And when they brought this box of records to me and I started going through all of those records, I could feel my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and my great-great-grandfather, who was born in 1855, standing over my shoulder. Wow. I had chills. I was excited. And I opened it up, and there it was, Peter Clark. He's 38 years old a citizen of the United States over the age of 21 and from Louisiana. A very exciting moment indeed. Well, and you know, there's so many moments like that waiting for everybody, right? Absolutely. All right. So let's start with this. I mean, the simplest question that anybody could ask, and I'm sure you hear it all the time, what can I find at the National Archives? What I like everyone to understand is that if your ancestors interacted in any way with the federal government, then records concerning that interaction would be at the National Archives. And some of those records are now digitized. I mean, they're on microfilm, but some of their records are original documents that you can request. And when you start opening these records, you realize my ancestor touched this document. Yeah. And so we're talking Civil War pension records. We're talking about Freedmen Bureau, which is on the microfilm. Of course, we're talking about the census records, of which you can get those online. But you also can go to the National Archives and pull out the census if you want to see it. Not only that, but do you know you could get a certified census record? No, really? Yes, yes. Wow, how fun. Which is a nice artifact to leave the National Archives with. A sure. certified document with a, a ribbon on it and stamp from the National Archives. So this kind of answers another question we got here. Is there material there that is offline that can only be seen at the National Archives? Obviously so. Lots of it. That's right. And as I mentioned, the Homestead records, well, those records are not online. Civil War pension records. Not all are online. And so those are things you want to request. World War One information, World War Two information. Well, here's another question for you. How do you best prepare for a trip to the National Archives? Well, first of all, I tell people, go to the NARA website, and that's N-A-R-A dot gov. And just look at it. Look at what narrow states they have available, their holdings. And then kind of map out what you think you want. So if you know you're going for Civil War records, then at least find out, first of all, was your ancestor in the Civil War? And you can even find that out on Ancestry.com. They may have a pension file index get that index card write down those numbers so that when you enter the national archives you know what you're looking for 
This is really kind of like for any research trip then, isn't it? I mean, because time is your real currency when you go on a research trip. I mean, more important even than money because you have such a limited amount of time and you're trying to get oriented and you're trying to figure out what you're looking for. And you mentioned to me off air that there are certain times where they actually bring your records out. Uh, So it's really important that you're prepared before you leave and try to find things that you can find online before you actually go to the archives. Absolutely. I mean, you also need to understand when you walk into the archives, you have to go through security and you also must have your ID because in order for you to get an official research card, you have to have your ID just to go through the door into the research room to get your card. That's a good point. Do they they allow you to have pens and pencils in there? Yes, you can have pencils. Okay. In there. Mm-hmm. Just in case something actually touches a document, which would be horrendous. Well, you, yes, and you really want to uh, remember you're dealing with old records. So you want to treat those old records as if they're the most fragile thing that you've ever come across. Right, right. Because you don't want to damage any record. No. And once again, there is security. So even when you leave the research room, One room is a room where you go and you request your document. There's another room where you retrieve the document. And when you retrieve that document, you're going through security again. And then you're getting your document, and when you return it, you walk in back out. You have to then show evidence that you're not walking out with the document. In other words, we want those documents to remain at the National yeah, Archives. <laughs> no kidding, right? Absolutely. And real quick, is there pretty good help there for people when they get there? Yes, you will find volunteers that are available on the first floor to assist. And then there's a finding aids room where you can go in and request to meet with an expert on various documents, military documents, homestead documents, Anything that you cannot find online and the people that I would call in the front room can't help you with, there is a room that you can go in and speak to an expert to help you. Love it. Bernice, thanks so much for coming on Ask Us Anything. I'm looking forward to my first trip to the archives. Well, the day you come, I'll be there with you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Okay, great. Once again, thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.